My name is Kunal, and welcome to the Geeks of the Valley podcast, which connects with some of the brightest minds globally while leading their respective industries today to discuss the hottest upcoming industry trends and how their work is affecting the global economy. We're back at it again with Darren Chu from Tradable Patterns. Darren, thank you so much for joining us from Singapore this morning. How have you been this past month? Hi, Kuno. Thanks for having me in, and uh, it's always good to to chat. You know, it's been um, a month of, uh, I guess, uh, extreme tests on a few levels. I, I mean, here in Singapore, as, as some of your listeners would know, there's been what's been described as a circuit breaker, but uh, what I would call it is a lockdown. So it's been it's been rather difficult for a lot of people I know who work from home and uh, that that's been an ongoing theme for a lot of people for probably two months now so even before the circuit breaker kicked in there were people who uh, through company policies but also through the encouragement coming from the government there, there was a, a mandated working from home and so for some individuals it's been two months of, of really just um, not seeing anybody outside of uh, their homes, apart from those who they see on occasional visits to the grocery store or, or to the, the local restaurant, the neighborhood restaurant where they can do only takeaway from. So uh, what, you know, what I, I think is particularly um, uh, important to keep in mind, of course, is what the ramifications are of all these, these policies. So oftentimes in, in you know, this isn't to dis- to dismiss or diminish the the health impact of, of a virus. I I like to look at things um, in a holistic manner, and I like to just being a trader. I I always look at the uh, the potential contrarian angle to to every single issue, uh, whether it's something in world politics or something around a company's earnings announcement, or perhaps the way. Uh, uh, the way uh, macroeconomic indicator is impacting an FX pair. So with, with respect to, uh, you know, what we're seeing uh, here in terms of infections, uh, again, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware there has been um, a surge in new case count, uh, perhaps uh, on a on a weekly basis, uh, I, I don't know if it's still rising day to day, but on a, a sort of month to month basis from April, you know, the, the April figure versus the March figure and, um, you know, this past week's figure versus the week prior to that, I, I think we're, we're still seeing a, an uptrend. Um, what what the latest figures that that I've seen, the daily figures seem to suggest, and, I, and I'm not watching this that closely, but seems to suggest that there may be uh, a tapering off um, in line with what we're seeing in other countries. But what what most people who see these figures, which I think have gone north of 20,000 in terms of case count infectees for Singapore, they should keep in mind that we've only had I believe we've had fewer than 20 deaths. Now, again, not to diminish uh, the the significance of any one of those deaths, but do note that every single one of those had prior health conditions 
or were of um, the other risk category, which is uh, the elderly age bracket. So it's been it's been very it's been very sad to see, but it's also created uh, the kind of measures which have resulted in untold uh, number of jobs destroyed, uh, companies, particularly SMEs, uh, going bankrupt. There are certain policy support measures in place to keep some SMEs as well as some, some tenants, whether they be residential or commercial tenants, um, at, uh, at, you know, at a level of uh, cash cushion to tie them over uh, for the next few months or you know, the next couple of quarters, depending on whether you're one of those recipients qualify for, for these measures. So it's not like everybody in the country gets a blanket um, cash disbursement. So it's been, um, so, so, you know, just from the perspective that, uh, the perspective that I have of being um, a foreigner and a business owner, and also um, just somebody who's been on the ground here for 10 years, you know, what I would say is this has been the most difficult period for me personally in the 10 years I've been in, here in Singapore. Thank you for that insight, Darren. Now, looking at this from the point of view of the financial markets, what are some of the general trends you are seeing as of now? Well, in the past month and a half, we've had one of the sharpest, if not the sharpest rally since the Great Depression, since after the Great Depression. So it's been, um, and when I say rally, I'm referring to in US equities, but any risk asset, and when I say risk asset, I, I'm referring to any market which is deemed risky, where uh, you're not, as an investor, going to lose all your funds invested, but rather you're, you're, you're looking at some degree of risk. Whereas in the traditional financial textbook definition, something like a U.S. Treasury or some money market instrument issued by a central bank would be deemed or you know, backed by a central bank would be deemed risk free. OK, so that's that's kind of what I mean when I say risk markets. But basically, in the last month and a half, we've had this tremendous rally. Uh, the S&P 500 yesterday actually pushed higher, even with unemployment numbers that that we haven't seen since again since the great depression and and, and yesterday's market data release was on the non-farm payroll specifically this nfp as it's called it comes out every friday at 8 30 in the morning new york time and actually the number was although around uh, around what was expected perhaps not as dire as what was expected but Nevertheless, if you just compare that number, I mean, we're, we're looking now in the States at roughly 30 million people uh, having been unemployed in the last little while. And, you know, ever since the lockdown measures began and, you know, this, this kind of goes to a lot of uh, well, my sort of views around the lockdown. I mean, again, I, I like to look at the big picture. And in this case, we, we've had unemployment um, businesses shut down, which 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 are leaving real impacts, and there's the social impact of that. Uh, there are problems around uh, perhaps 
drug abuse happening in some homes, you know, amongst certain individuals who might be holed up in home unproductive, you know, not able to do the kind of work or run the business that, that they so proudly built. And so, you know, these are some things to think about. And, and with respect to the health impact, you know, obviously, you know, there, there, there's uh, a dearth of, uh, I guess, activity outside uh, just due to the lockdown measures. And so you get some potential knock-on effects. I call them secondary effects around people not getting enough vitamin D, enough exercise, enough fresh air, the list goes on. Okay, so so coming back to the market trends, you know, with, um, with what we've seen insofar as unemployment goes, uh, obviously the bond market, the fixed income market in, in the States is signaling quite differently from the equity markets, whereas uh, the NASDAQ now apparently is it's, uh, it's a stock market worth more than all other stock markets combined globally. It's, its valuation has obviously been driven by techs throughout much of, much of its history. You know, the, the FANGs and now, now the acronyms changed a bit with Netflix dropping out and being replaced by Microsoft. In a lot of instances where, where the acronym becomes FA, I guess F-A-A-M-G-S, you know, it's, it's become um, a very much, um, you know, heavily skewed market where, you know, if those particular FANG or FAG um, members end up driving the market higher you, as a casual observer of the S&P 500 or of the NASDAQ, you know, one gets a sense that, you know, everything's going really well, but, you know, a large proportion of that outperformance, of course, has been driven by a very narrow uh, list of leading equity names. So that's something to keep in mind. And, and obviously with uh, the fixed income market signaling, so differently where interest rates, the yields implied by the prices of the of the bonds or treasuries being so low, you know, in some cases negative and increasingly in negative territory, you know, that signals that the economy is being projected as being in rather dire straits by a lot of these fixed income markets. You know, this this is truly unprecedented, um, at least for the US, seeing seeing negative yields. And, and that was implied by the Fed fund futures just yesterday, I believe for the first time, um, you know, either yesterday or the day before, but, you know, late, late in this past week. And it's, it's something that, of course, we've seen insofar as the negative rates go in Europe, in the Eurozone, in Japan. But we have to ask ourselves, you know, what has, what has the central banks in those jurisdictions in those regions, bringing down interest rates, the overnight interest rate at which banks can borrow from the central bank uh, to negative levels. What has that done to those economies? Has it, has it unleashed the stimulus that was expected? Has, I, I mean, for anyone following the banking sector in Europe or in Japan, but, but specifically in Europe, Okay, let's let's talk about names like Deutsche Bank. Okay, just so that we have a name to go with here. Deutsche Bank has been hit particularly hard, but this applies generally speaking to banks in Europe where interest rates have been low and, and banks generally make money through the spread between 
the rate they're able to borrow at from the central bank versus the rate that they lend at. But if that spread is too narrow, then obviously the profit margins of that, that lending business, that, that core component of banking gets impacted negatively. And so a lot of the banks have been very much reluctant um, despite all the quantitative easing besides all this access to cheap capital to lend out further because of the, of the concern that a lot of these banks have for their inability to generate the amount of cash flow or profit necessary to, to continue uh, you know, operating safely within sort of the regulatory required capital ratios that you know the US regulator or the European regulator has for these banks. And so so I guess the point I'm trying to make is despite all the quantitative easing fiscal um, fiscal stimulus measures announced, you know, in the last month and a half to two months, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that sure has driven equity valuations higher and in some cases back to near record highs. But when we look at the amount of real lending activity that the banks are passing on to SMEs or to, to individual consumers, or to even MNCs, you know, a, a lot of that lending isn't happening at quite the levels that is needed to ensure that the called the mainstream the main street economy continues running smoothly. Okay, so so the challenge, obviously, with um, with all these policies is to ensure that there's a more equitable distribution of the benefits, and every time. We have a crisis situation, whether it's, you know, the GFC in 2008, where we had things like TARP announced quite oftentimes, the distribution of the, of the stimulus benefits just doesn't get uh, to as wide of a stakeholder base as one would hope. Okay, so, so of course, you know, when things are rushed through, when you have a matter of days or weeks, to decide seemingly, otherwise disaster ensues, then sometimes policy errors happen. And, and, and this can happen just due to the pressure of having to formulate a quick policy response in light of the crisis, or this might be happening due to certain lobbying efforts, right? So, so let's, let's, not be, um, let's not be naive here. You know, there are, there are obviously are interest groups at play who, who do knock on the door for, for, for the bailouts. And oftentimes the bailout funds just don't get equitably distributed or distributed in a, in a way where, um, where the benefits can pass on to, to sectors or individuals who perhaps have been uh, ignored in the process. And so, um, yeah, so, so with respect to the trends, uh, I, I think there are the disturbing uh, interest rate uh, observations that you know many in the investment world are making, and you know some people are happy with that. But but look, as as I said, you know we we have some precedents for that. We we can we can look at you know what the experience has been in Europe and in Japan, and you know whether businesses and whether consumers have have responded favorably 
uh, net net, you know, the jury is still out in, in some cases, but it's, it's quite clear that the amount of economic activity uh, that we have seen subsequent to those measures hasn't been as much as what some would have hoped, okay? So um, how does that impact gold? And how does that impact the US dollar? Well, so obviously when, you, when you're printing money out of thin air and the supply of money grows, but the demand for that money remains relatively fixed, then obviously the value of that, you know, the, pr the price of that currency has to, in, in, you know, at some point, it has to reflect uh, that, that imbalance on that, on that demand supply picture. And so obviously there's been a rush towards markets like gold. Gold, of course, has been an obvious choice and Bitcoin to a lesser extent for, for many. And on, I believe our prior recording, I, I did talk about Bitcoin uh, to some extent, you know, we've, um, We've, we've run closer now to the halving event, which is scheduled for May 12th. And with that halving event for Bitcoin, you know, what that means is uh, we're, we're going to get greater difficulty for the miners in generating uh, the same amount of block rewards. Um, greater effort, meaning they'll need to deploy more computing resources, uh, more, uh, more server utilization towards uh, producing the same number of uh, Bitcoin rewards. And so that that really has driven the rally in Bitcoin, uh, perhaps belatedly in the last month, um, you know, since our last recording. And it, it was, um, to be very honest for me, it was a bit of a fake out for me where I actually on March, you know, mid-March when I saw Bitcoin plunge below 4,000 US, I actually thought, oh, wow, you know, we're, we're breaking this major uptrend support level. I thought that would have been more bearish than it actually ended up being, where we had that just one day spike down during the peak selling of, uh, of risk markets. You know, the actual peak on risk market selling, it, it came after the March 13th plunge on Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin plunge, the maximum plunge, uh, was just a couple of days, perhaps about uh, five days or so before the maximum S&P 500 plunge. But nevertheless, it was during a time when Bitcoin was sold out with, you know, with the baby in the bathwater, meaning, you know, everything, regardless of whether it was meant to be a safe haven or not, was just sold off en masse. And that was largely driven by um, by forced liquidation, margin call situations on a lot of uh, cross-asset portfolios. And so uh, Bitcoin was not immune to that. But but the, the bounce back, you know, the magnitude of the bounce from just shy of 4,000 back to 10,000 now. 10,000, I believe, was just reached yesterday. You know, that that to me was, um, was, was unexpected on the magnitude. But nevertheless, luck... Uh, you know, Bitcoin is a relatively uh, nascent market still. I, I believe we're into our 11th or 12th year, but it's it's really uh, it's really still uh, subject to uh, the activity of certain whale traders, investors. Okay, so they're 
there is a network of these whales who do have a disproportionate amount of influence, right? And uh, and it'll be it'll be some time before the market becomes, I guess, more uh, liquid to the point where those whales have less influence. Okay, so uh, with respect to the U.S. dollar, well, we haven't seen as much of a sell-off as one would expect in uh, in these last couple weeks since the announcement of all these uh, all these quantitative easing type uh, announcements. You know this uh, this impact that that I was referring to of the U.S. dollar or other currencies getting. Uh, Getting depreciated over time, that that really is a long-term uh, prognosis. It's not something that one can easily trade off of. But but we have nevertheless seen shorter-term impacts on gold and Bitcoin from those same policy measures. So Darren, what is your view on oil after the April negative pricing on the WTI? Well, so that was an un precedent event just like the equity market crash of march but i would say that um, this took me by an even greater surprise where i i've never seen negative pricing for any commodity futures with wti there was talk of the negative pricing even before it happened by some analysts but for you to actually see it on your screen with with that particular evening well it was an evening for me but it was the new york morning when wti on on the front month which at the time was the may contract when it went into the negative on my broker screen i actually saw the price briefly plunge to zero and and you know it was it was as high as 15 dollars us earlier in that afternoon for me so about six hours before i saw it go to zero it was still trading at about fifteen dollars, and when it when it just went to zero, the broker platform didn't have the ability to actually display negative pricing. So all I would see is the price disappearing. So there was no bid or offer, and then briefly after, I would see a flurry of quotes slightly above zero at five cents or ten cents. It was it was unreal, and then later I I, I found out just from another data source that it had gone to negative 30 or negative close to negative 40. So that was, that was interesting um, to watch for anybody. I think even, even if you're not a trader, but I, yeah, I, I would just say, look, um, that has passed. We have not seen subsequent pressure anywhere close to that on the June contract. So a lot of that was driven by a contangled situation cause or exasperated, I would say, exasperated by the rolling of ETF, uh, ETF basically driven futures positions uh, from the May futures contract of WTI into the June. So there was this massive ETF known as the USO for oil that was meant to track the front month contract for WTI futures. So meaning, they have to be long, according to their previous policy statement, they had to be long, uh, which at the time was the May contract for almost the entire duration of that contract's um, front month status. 
And so as the June contract was becoming the front month contract, they, they then had to roll out of the May contract, which created selling pressure on the May. So if you're long the May, you basically have to sell all the May and then you have to buy the June. So that would have pushed up the June price while lowering the May price. And so the spread between the May and the June, it, it increased as a result of the, you know, those kind of rows. It wasn't just USO. There were other ETFs like USO also making similar rows at around that time, either the week before or a few days before. But if you, as an ETF issuer, if you publish the exact timing of when you do those rows, you get front run. So all those hedge funds, which were expecting USO to make the rollout of their May contract during that particular uh, few days, they would have sold in advance or short sold. Um, you, you can think of it as because you're you're basically as as a speculator uh, trying to front run USO, you would have basically been selling WTI futures that that you weren't holding, so you would have been just trying to take advantage of the plunge that you would have anticipated on on the May contract. So I guess coming back to whether I expect the same thing to happen with uh, with the row that's expected out of the June contract. My answer is no, there will be some selling pressure, but we're not going to see negative prices based on the way I see the chart patterns unfolding for the June contract. You know, the June contract, just uh, for your reference, it's it's rebounded to about $25. Um, I think it had a low of around maybe $7. I, I can't remember exactly, but you know, in percentage terms, that's a, that's a remarkable recovery. And if you look at the charts, the one-year chart, the five-year, 10-year charts for WTI on the front month contract, it, it largely looks as if we've made a generational bottom. Okay, so, so in my personal portfolio, I've been actually buying uh, a different ETF, not the USO. I don't like the way the USO is constructed, the way it's exposed to these contango-induced negative rollover yields. But uh, I have another ETF that I particularly like, the DBO, which supposedly has its exposure to futures contracts distributed across the futures calendar year. So it's not, it's not all concentrated in the so-called front month contract. Um, so, so that's how I feel about oil, Bruno. Thank you for that insight, Darren. Uh, to wrap up our call with the last question here, in light of the current market and the U.S. reporting a job loss of around 30 million, what are some of the market sectors where there could be a long-term buying opportunity? So apart from within the energy sector, and I like nat gas as well, I would say that uh, longer term, there are great opportunities within tourism, hospitality, airlines. So obviously, most of your listeners would have heard of Warren Buffett's decision to sell out of most of his airline holdings. And this is one of those cases where, where there could be some contrarian signals available where certain large investors may not necessarily be as astute on their timing decisions. We've seen this over and over. I, I, I don't want to make this about, about Buffett's decision necessarily, but generally speaking, when tracking these larger hedge fund or mutual fund investors, there, there are all kinds of instances where 
uh, a contrarian benefit uh, can be had from watching what they do. So when coming down to uh, airlines specifically, we we know the narrative. It's it's very obvious that flights have been operating well below capacity at the lowest at the lowest level of utilization ever in their history. That being said, as the lockdowns ease, lift around the world, people will begin flying again. And the same can be said for cruise lines. Uh, there, there's a, a, a ban or a law that prevents, I guess, these cruise lines from servicing American customers, I, I believe, until around July or perhaps August. I, I don't remember the details, but uh, for the next couple months, at least, these cruise lines are, for the most part, grounded. But nevertheless, there is uh, there is a large amount of fundraising, capital raising that's been going on that should tie a lot of these cruise liners over for the next year or two. Um, I also feel that there have been some great opportunities among some of the hotel operators. So similarly, uh, along the lines of uh, the impact from the lockdowns, from travel not being uh, permitted or being uh, facilitated. I think I think that tourism, that travel eventually will come back. Um, these hotels, casinos, they all will benefit. And a large number of their stocks have actually rallied more than 50% since uh, the March lows. That's a massive bounce. And so for those who are aggressive enough, willing to take a longer term time frame on these investments, by all means, if we ever do retest these March lows that, that we recently saw, these these particular themes would be very interesting to uh, accumulate shares for. So uh, apart from those, you know, there obviously are certain um, U.S. real estate, uh, I would call them REIT operators that own large uh, shopping malls and other real estate that's been impacted uh, from the inability to work from the office, etc. So a lot of these, a lot of these operators of these REITs were also hammered. And so what I would, what I would always encourage people to try to do is to take a, a, a contrarian approach. You know, when everybody's fearful, when everybody is going on and on about, you know, the the, the worst case scenario, well, that's already all baked into the price of whatever we're looking at, um, especially, you know, after people have been familiar with those arguments for months now, uh, we've been, you know, we've had the, the lockdown policies in place for well over a month, two months in many cases. And so when those themes are understood for months, you have to then start asking yourself, well, um, have I missed the boat, right? And, and you know, that uh, again, that that's driving a lot of uh, the FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out type mentality that, that we're seeing among a lot of uh, U.S. equity, global equity investors, which have brought levels on indices like the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, uh, you know, back to valuation levels where one would have to be concerned, you know, if, if one were looking at valuation. And so, although uh, we are back to near record highs with the NASDAQ, um, that's not to say that we are not near uh, record lows on some of these 
uh, hard hit uh, sectors, which I just mentioned. So I am being very selective. I am accumulating or have been accumulating in the last couple of weeks within those sectors that I just mentioned. But at the same time, I do feel that uh, a lot of the tech names are overvalued. And this is on you know price to earnings, price to book type metrics, um, traditional uh, ratios that Buffett has spoken of, which would include sort of looking at the total market capitalization of equity markets around the world versus the GDP of, uh, of the corresponding nations. I mean, this is something that, you know, according to Buffett has been very reliable as an indicator of the market being overvalued. So, so let's just keep that all in mind, right? So, so, you know, on the one hand, with respect to the airline sector, you know, I, I made the comment about there being a contrarian type uh, opportunity, but at the same time, I do agree with Buffett on his more general statement towards U.S. equities being overvalued. Hope that makes sense, you know, to, to have those seemingly conflicting views. For anyone that wants to get in touch with Darren or wants to learn more about Darren's technical analysis and research, please visit him at www.tradablepatterns.com.